Well, this is uh, the next one. I can't remember how many there have been uh, in my series about the meaning of communion. And uh, as I was preparing this, it occurred to me that church people sometimes use some very strange language that is um, a little bit difficult for others to catch on to quickly. Um, I, I had this powerfully demonstrated for me in, in a little church up in Wisconsin where uh, we had a, a community choir that got lots of children coming into the church and some of whom had never really been in a church before at all. And there was one little girl who came and, and kept coming uh, by herself and um, she was really getting into Sunday school and everything and learning all the stories about Jesus. And I'm really glad she, she, she caught on to how excited we were about Jesus. And, and then it came upon Holy Week. And um, apparently I, I heard about this from, from the teachers that when they started to talk about um, the story of Holy Week, she said, what? This guy's dead? She was shocked that she'd been going to church for a while and hadn't heard that this guy Jesus everybody kept talking about was dead. And it made me realize that we do have some real insider things. And the great thanksgiving might be one of them. So I want to focus today and think about this meaning that we impart in saying the great thanksgiving. Now, just the word itself, uh, Thanksgiving might be a little bit, um, uh, cause a little bit cognitive dissonance. I know when I was a kid, uh, and still many churches today have communion by everyone sitting in the pews and passing a plate, a big platter around it, and it has heaped high with pieces of bread, and it looks kind of like a Thanksgiving, you know, table, passing it down the row, waiting for everyone to take their turn. And the cubes are really small, though, and the plate doesn't come back your way again. <laughs> and that's not what most people think about when they think of just Thanksgiving as a meal. Uh, comedians know this very well. I, I, I do, you, I'm revealing again my taste for corny jokes, but uh, Kevin James says, uh, Thanksgiving man, not a good day to be in my pants, to be my pants. Uh, Jay Leno says you can tell uh, you've had a great Thanksgiving when you have to let your bathrobe out. <laughs> Louis C.K., oh, I love that guy. The meal isn't over when I'm full, the meal is over when I hate myself. <laughs> and why, why these sayings? Because we associate the Thanksgiving meal with abundance, abundance of food. But here, we have a little bread cube or one piece of bread at this Thanksgiving meal. Well, where's the abundance? What are we thankful for? Well, we are feasting on grace. Now, you know, when we, we hold up the cup, we, we say that we are sharing the cup of forgiveness for you and for many. 
So one thing that we're celebrating as we have a feast of grace is that we are celebrating God's gracious offer to forgive us and receive us into God's presence, even though we don't share God's holiness to the extent that God does. But we also are remembering and giving thanks for grace of another kind. If you remember back to a couple, a couple months ago when we talked about uh, the very first Last Supper that was observed by Jesus with his disciples, that Last Supper was a kind of Thanksgiving meal in itself. It was a Passover meal. It was a meal that was observed to remember and give thanks for God leading the Israelite people out of slavery and into a freedom to be the people that God intended for them to be. So that supper was remembering not the awareness of God's forgiveness of our sin, but it was celebrating God's power to liberate us from the oppressive effects of other people's sin. What a strange thing to put together in this one symbol, in the feast of the abundance of grace. The forgiveness of our sin, the forgiveness of other sins, and also a thanksgiving and remembrance of God's desire to deliver us from the effects of sin of others that keep us downtrodden. We remember the Passover, and we remember Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them, all of them, the ones who were wrongfully putting him to death, the ones who had run away, those who had denied him. It's a huge, abundant, generous grace. If you think about it, if the table of God's grace is big enough for forgiving our sin and the sins of all others who come by faith. And we're all together kind of metaphorically at least around that table. We are probably there at that table with some people who are done us wrong. Maybe some people who are in a way our enemies. The 23rd Psalm, that beautiful, comforting image of the Lord as a shepherd contains within it at the end a kind of allusion to this kind of table. For thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies and anointed my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
One of the most beautiful uh, scenes that I've um, seen that demonstrating this kind of presence around the table of people who should be estranged. It's from the film, um, it's an old film now, but watch it. It will never go out of style, I do not think. It's called Places in the Heart. Uh, Sally Fields won an Academy Award. Danny Glover was in it. John Malkovich, Amy Madigan, a wonderful film. You may have to get it out of the library. It's Places in the Heart, and it is PG. But Sally Fields uh, is a woman whose um, life comes to a, a very abrupt um, change, the very beginning, when her husband, who's a sheriff, is shot in a, a kind of random, strange act of violence by a young man who was uh, drunk. And it's set in the Depression, and she then has to go about trying to figure out how to hold her family together, stay on the farm. And in the process, she, she faces uh, all kinds of um, social obstacles that um, still are with us today, although in different forms, but she encounters racism and sexism and, and even uh, kind of a discrimination against people with special needs. Because uh, as part of her trying to work out a way to stay on her farm, different people come her way who also are facing challenges because of obstacles that are put in their way. An African-American man comes to help her figure out how to plant cotton to make enough money to live. A blind man is kind of dumped on her doorstep as a way of coming up with a little money for rent. And, and in all of their different need, they work together and kind of keep the farm. Now, you'd think it's a real, real happy ending. It's, it's a kind of happy ending. It's not exactly happy because the wonderful man played by uh, Danny Glover, uh, who basically taught her how to farm her land, had to flee for fear of his life after that all happened, after he saved the farm because of the presence of KKK. She sends him with blessing and with money. But at the table, there's an image at the table at the end of that film when she has gone to church and sitting in the church there they're taking communion and they're passing the bread down the aisle. And you see the people who are physically in church and then the camera comes away for a second and then it comes back in focus. And there in the pews are not just the people who are physically present, but the people who are present in God's eternal time her husband, the young man who foolishly killed him, the man who's had to flee for his life, some of the people who were involved in placing obstacles in the way of that family, they're all there. And when you see that, you remember, if you've watched it a few times, that at the beginning of that film, 
They have the music playing, coming out of a church, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And then you remember what you're seeing in the pews as they're taking communion is a foretaste of the glory divine. So even though we get just a little bit of a piece of bread, it is full of the abundance of God's grace and it is a foretaste of glory divine. I don't know uh, what your family Thanksgiving is like, but for me growing up, it was our biggest biggest family gathering. Everybody uh, came into town for this one. And um, because I am uh, an apple that didn't fall far from the tree, it was not a very organized day until it all happened. And um, it would take a long time for that meal to make it to the beautiful table. It would sometimes be three o'clock in the afternoon before we ate our whatever you call it at three o'clock in the afternoon, our Thanksgiving feast. And um, because people would be busy with preparations for that meal all day long, uh, like me, we would try to, we, we didn't eat any breakfast at all. So as the day wore on, you were really, really hungry. And uh, as I was reading this passage and thinking about this foretaste of a feast, I remembered my grandfather who would be back in the kitchen carving the turkey or turkeys. And I discovered at some point, I don't know when I figured this out, I discovered that if I would go back there and be the person who was bringing him the next platter he needed or holding the knife or giving him a towel to wipe his hands, if I would just be hanging around waiting for him to give me instructions, at the time when he made a cut and some of the meat fell into the drippings down at the bottom, he would give it to me like a little faithful puppy. And I gotta tell you, I'm a vegetarian now, so I can't really admit this, but that was the best tasting, juicy meat. Now, all my brothers and sisters and cousins and stuff, they would run in and out, and they would see Grandpa doing that, and they would try to get him to give them food, but he would not, he would say, wait till dinner. So you had to be the one who was there at the right time in order to get those little morsels. And I have to tell you, they were, really didn't add up to much, but they were the best tasting pieces of the day. They were a foretaste of the meal to come. Chris's, uh, no, Chris, you didn't read it this service. This service, it was Jeff. Jeff's passage that he read about the wedding feast. When the scriptures uh, talk about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus often calls it not a Thanksgiving meal, but a wedding banquet. And in our great Thanksgiving, we use the words at the very end, until we feast with you at your heavenly banquet. Do you remember hearing that? And the heavenly banquet 
is because we have seen through the teachings of Paul and Ephesians, this relationship of the church and of Jesus is like a bride and bridegroom or like a couple united by love. And we have come to see this meal as a foretaste of the heavenly banquet when even though we can't see it now, all are made well and reconciled. The church is at rest. And like the, the ones who were ready when the bridegroom came back, are having communion and being in worship is part of our being ready when the bridegroom comes back to participate in that future that God is preparing. When I was a, a little kid, we, we learned a song. Bill, I'm going to have you cut the mic for when I do this. We learned a little song based on the scripture from uh, Revelation 3. You can turn it back on now. Thank you. <laughs> so this is a foretaste of in the heavenly banquet. I uh, called our last uh, sermon about what's for supper, and I thought this one we really could, could call up, uh, when is supper being served? We get the foretaste now, and there is, by God's good, powerful, reconciling, abundant love, the promise of a heavenly banquet where people, once estranged, can sit down together and enjoy the abundance of God's love. So, um, knock, knock. Who's there? Justin. Justin, time for supper. So, hear these words of invitation. All you who truly and earnestly repent of your sin and intend to walk henceforth in God's holy ways, observing his commandment to love and walking in peace with your love and neighbor, with your neighbor. Draw near and take this holy sacrament, this foretaste to your comfort. And doing so by faith, may we all be ready and willing to serve the God who in God's good time makes all things reconciled. Amen.